0: Instant Sermon Weekend on this program, Faith Is. an Instant Sermon Weekend means we really get to think out loud here on America Out Loud. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and if you've been listening, you know that that's what we do here. We often think out loud, and I try to prod us and challenge us and stretch us in God's direction. I try to help us, and we really try to help each other, I think, grow in God's direction. We try to help each other develop faith, and we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to develop that kind of confidence. And today, we have that opportunity that comes around every now and then for Instant Sermon Weekend. Well, Instant Sermon, you might say, what is that? Well, that's an idea that someone brought to me many years ago here at our church. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, And one of the people in our church brought this idea, they'd seen it someplace else, and they said, what this church I saw does every time there are five Sundays in the month, on the fifth Sunday, the pastor takes questions and answers them as part of the sermon time. Well, I thought that was an intriguing idea. I had no idea what questions people might ask, but... I figured I wasn't the answer man, but we could at least have a conversation about what the Bible says about some of these kind of things, and and I never pretend that I have all of the answers to the questions people ask. After all, they're asking me on the spot, and I answer them. I ask people to write their question down. That helps everybody clarify what they're asking, or their thought, or their scripture reference. I don't always say it has to be a question. Sometimes people just put a verse down and say, what about it? And that's fine. We do that. But they write it on a little three-by-five card. We're analog, old school for all of you who are wondering about, is there a digital way to do this? And I'm sure there is. We just haven't done it that way. We collect all the cards during the offering period, and the ushers bring them to me, and I go through them one by one and talk about the question or the comment or the verse, and that becomes the sermon. Over time, we've had some very interesting questions. We've had some pretty easy questions sometimes. We've had some that are much more challenging to answer. And I don't, as I said, pretend that every time we do an instant sermon it's a definitive answer, because I'm thinking out loud, you know, along with the people. And we're trusting that God will lead us, and I think he has and does. But there's something refreshing about just kind of processing these things Together and thinking them through together. So I don't worry about whether I've got everything straight or everything exactly the way I might if I'd had a couple hours to think about all the questions. But we want to try to recreate that here. And unfortunately, I get to choose the questions and. We just kind of go through it from there. Now, I don't choose the questions based on spending a lot of time working on them and choosing the questions that I just want to answer. In fact, the last time we did instant sermon at our church, we had some really good questions. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to use those questions and to revisit that. And I haven't looked at the questions since we had that session that we had the good questions. I haven't reviewed them to to, uh, answer them ahead of time. And I've typed them up just as I had them in my stack. So we're going to do this pretty much the way we do it at church. It's not exactly the same because I have seen these questions, but I haven't seen them for a while. I just pulled them up today and thought, well, let's have at it. So here we are, Thinking Out Loud on Instant Sermon Weekend. And I'm going to give you the questions that people ask, and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit, encourage you to think it through, too. Because one of the things that I think is really important is not that you depend on someone like me or anyone else to always answer everything. There are, there are definitely definitive answers in the Bible. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Absolutely, unquestionably, the answer is yes, he did. So there are some very definitive things. Did God create the heavens and the earth? Absolutely, yes, he did. No question about that. There are other harder things that we have to navigate our way through, and we do that in light of the Bible's wisdom, and we apply that wisdom in the best way we know how. And So that's kind of what we do when we have instant sermon is we try to apply the Bible's wisdom as the best we know how in the moment as we think out loud together. And I want you to learn, if you haven't already, to both have confidence that you can wrestle with some of these big questions and think them through. And I want you to develop the skill of doing that. None of us is perfect at it. Far from it but we can help each other get better at it. And I hope by doing this, it will help you think it through. It's entirely possible that as we're going through these questions today, you will hear me say something and you'll say, yeah, but what about you should have added this? Well, that's terrific. I'm really glad if you think that because maybe I missed something that's important. And that is evidence that you are thinking along with us and developing that skill. And if you were put on the spot to ask, to answer a question like this you might ask answer it differently than I would but I'm not going to quibble about that we're just answering the best we can as we try to help each other stretch in God's direction so here we go question number one this was a, a really interesting one we could spend a lot of time on this we'll try not to overdo it but sometimes I do so here's the question in the Old Testament God used hail to kill the enemies of Israel do you think he has climate change in hand? Well, first observation is that's a mighty leap from God using hail, and he did in Joshua chapter 10. You can read the story. He used hail to help Israel fight a battle there. And I don't know how exactly that's connected to climate change, but, well, we need to think about that. And God used other physical things like climate-ish stuff, I guess you could say, to help his people. He did that with the Red Sea. So there's another example of God using a natural resource, a river, to help his people. And I don't know that those are all connected or even in any way connected to climate change, but we need to think about this idea of climate change and, and how God might think about it and how he might want us to think about it. Now, there's a whole lot of things involved in climate change, and and you've heard this, that, and the other thing from all over the map. Most of what you and I have heard in the media and the popular sources is, oh my goodness, climate change is going to kill us and we're all going to die. We've been hearing that for a while now, and we have not suffered any of the predicted impacts of climate change. Does the climate change? Well, a lot of people say it does. There's an ebb and flow to things. But that's not what the climate change people are promoting. They are promoting that it's a deliberate climate change caused by what people do and have done. And so we, they say, are responsible for the climate and that the climate is warming. And oh, my goodness, we're going to have a flood. Well, that's just not the case. Maybe the planet's warming, maybe not. You're going to find a lot of people disagreeing on that. And frankly, I have not seen any definitive science that convinces me that we have a problem with man-made climate change. I understand that many scientists will chart history and the evidence we have and say the climate has warmed and cooled from time to time, but that's just a natural process, nothing to worry about. I have seen people say, Well, they're getting all hysterical about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and then people turn around and say, well, what's wrong with that? Our plants need carbon dioxide. And of course, that's one of the things that maybe you and I thought about from the very first we started hearing about this problem of carbon dioxide. Maybe it's not a problem, because I learned a long time ago, plants need it, and they absorb the carbon dioxide and make oxygen, and we all benefit, so... You know, there's a whole lot of stuff. Part of what you need to understand is that a lot of people have invested in climate change to make money. Well, whenever there's money to be made, they're going to defend their position because that's the way they collect. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And so they do that all the way to the bank. And I think universities get involved in that. They adopt that as a preferred perspective or a specialty area and so they have to have the climate change hysteria to fund their ongoing research and their projects and all of that so you can't overlook the money motive the profit motive another thing that you have to realize when it comes to climate change is some people are using that to frighten you oh and by the way doesn't the bible say don't be afraid oh yes it does of course it does But they're using this climate change idea to frighten you into changing your behavior in a way that benefits them. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean it benefits them? Oh, yeah, take a look at all the green energy stuff and all the government giveaways to the supposedly green energy people. I mean, there's a lot of money going on and there's a lot of money changing hands. And people are using that to make money and To manipulate you by making you afraid and trying to control your behavior. Historically, in this country, we believed in liberty and that people could figure stuff out and they were smart enough to figure stuff out, and we didn't need government frightening us every time we turn around. And I want to say again: don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. God says that over and over, and when we act out of fear, we often make very unwise decisions. Now, somebody say, well, so you think we can treat the environment, the climate, everything any way we want to? No, I'm not suggesting that. It's pretty clear in the early instructions in Genesis that our responsibility is to be good stewards of the earth God has given us. We haven't always done that well, and we have messed up. I get that. I think that's terrible. But by and large, many people understand that we're supposed to take care of the world God has given us, and so we do. We take care of our yards, most of us. Some of us really love mowing the grass, and some of us really don't love mowing the grass. Yes, I see that hand, and yes, my hand is up in the don't love mowing the grass, but we still do it. We take care of our world, and that includes not just our homes, where we live, but it includes all of our business ideas and all of the rest of the things. We do the best we can and in using the resources God has given us, and he gave those to us for our well-being, and he expects us to take care of them. I read just today, I didn't even think about this question being on here because I hadn't reviewed it, but I read just today that out west in our country, they are removing some dams that were built some years ago because they want to return the rivers to their natural condition. Well, I don't know everything that's going on with that, but I expect, based upon some of the things I've read about what they've done in Florida to return rivers to their natural condition, that it won't take long before those rivers are back to the way they were when they put the dam in. So God does give us a nation, or I should say, a a natural environment that will serve us well and that has a tendency to protect itself and heal itself. We have an obligation not to abuse it, and we shouldn't. But this whole climate change hysteria, don't be afraid. And whenever they try to make you afraid, that should be what we call a clue that something's up. Because God says, don't be afraid. So yes, God has climate change under control, and we can trust him, and we're not going to be flooded out because God put a rainbow in the sky, and he said, I'm not destroying the earth with a flood again. And we remember that, and we give thanks. All right, next question. That's enough of that. When someone, and this is a really challenging one, so think this one through. When someone especially a child who can't make the decision is gravely ill, what is your opinion of those that allow and demand God's will to heal them instead of surgery or available technology? Well, these kinds of decisions are particularly challenging. They're particularly challenging for anybody who comes to an end-of-life situation and has to make a decision, what will I do going forward? People every day across our country hear a diagnosis that will lead to their loss of life. They have an illness, something that will take their life. It's happened in my family. It may happen in yours. I hope not, but it does happen. And so they have to make decisions about what will they do going forward with treatment or not treatment. See, it's entirely appropriate in some situations for people to say, no, I'm not going to treat this. I'm at the end of my life. God has been good to me, and I want my days to be good. I don't want to be tormented by the very invasive or difficult treatments, and I'm just going to go, to go with God, and I respect that. It's not an easy decision. I can't tell people what to decide. I don't think it's even easy for us to think it through ahead of time because you never know how you're going to react when you get that kind of news. And I hope you never do. I hope you never get that kind of news. But this is particularly difficult in this question because it concerns a child. And so we who are parents who have had young children and we were given the responsibility by God to make decisions regarding their care, that's much more difficult. And as a general statement, and again, you can't speak to every specific situation in a time like this, on a question like this, but in generally speaking, I think it's our responsibility to treat our children with the available options. Now, there might be situations where they are so ill and the available options would be so hard on them that it's just not a good thing. I respect that too. But generally speaking, I think it's a mistake for us to demand that God will do something. And that's what the question says. What is your opinion of those that allow and demand God's will to heal a child who's gravely ill? we don't demand from god we can ask god we can talk to god and he welcomes that but we don't demand from god we trust god we thank god that we can trust him we thank god that he cares about that child in ways we can hardly imagine and at the same time whenever we can we treat them with the effective medicines and treatments available when our children were little they had ear infection and we gave them that pink stuff whatever you call it, amoxicillin or something. And it was a remarkable thing. Very quickly, the ear infection got better. And it was bad news when our kids had ear infections because it was painful. Painful for them, painful for us because it was painful for them. So yes, I think we need to treat our children effectively. If there are situations that are beyond the normal kinds of treatment options, then I think it's important for parents to consult with the best medical advice and their pastors to help them navigate that situation. They need to talk it over and and do the best they can for their children. No one wishes that on them. But I'm convinced God will give us wisdom and peace. But we don't simply say, God, you got to fix this. I'm not doing anything. That's not our responsibility. That's shirking our responsibility. And we want to live up to what God calls us to. Now, here's an interesting question from Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and the question writer quotes the verse, and I think pretty accurately, so I'll read it, and then maybe I'll look at it from the scriptures as well, just to help us. But the, the question writer quotes Romans 5, 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. What does this mean? Well, on the face of that, it sounds like God gave the law so we would sin more. Well, that's not really what God is talking about here. It's not God's will that people sin. So, so if you if you kind of jump to that conclusion, uh, no, back up. In the context of this verse, he's talking about the work of Jesus in providing forgiveness of sins. He's talking about how Adam sinned, but then along comes Jesus to remedy sin. And the writer of Romans says the law came in, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. The law came in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so grace might also reign through justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in simple terms, God gave the law so we realized how much we needed his grace and the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus came and became sin for us paid the penalty for sin at the cross, died, overcame death by resurrection, and now we have the opportunity to walk in the grace of God and have new life and forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus did. The law was given to point out the futility of our trying to save ourselves. We cannot live up to the law. Only Jesus could, and he did. And so meaning the trespass might increase, the law was given so we had realized we we need Jesus more than we know. We need his grace, his sacrifice, more than we ever could have imagined. And that's the whole point of that. Too many people spend too much time trying to justify themselves. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into it at all. We all have done it. Maybe you're doing it now. You need the grace of God. You need the sacrifice of Jesus. You need forgiveness of sins and a whole new life that he gives. Trust him. Next question. Do you believe that our actions can be more powerful than our words? As a Christian... Oh boy, that's funny. I don't remember answering all of these questions at the time because it's been a while ago that, that we had this particular instant sermon at church. But I remember this one. Man, my brain lit up like a Christmas tree on that one because the obvious answer to me is that absolutely our actions can be, and I would suggest they are, more powerful than words. You know, we live in a world of words. I mean, you're listening to my words today. And I've got plenty of them, and I hope you'll keep listening. I hope they are helpful. But in a general sense, I want you to stop and think about, we live bombarded by words everywhere. There is something available to you to listen to 24-7 if you want to. You have to turn things on and turn things off, yes, but they are available, they are accessible. I like to listen to a lot of recorded material. It helps me. I listen to podcasts. I listen to this or that or the other. I listen to books. I've got some books I'm looking forward to listening to. So there are words everywhere. I've got some books I'm looking forward to reading. There are words everywhere. And people, a lot of people, have a lot of words to say. So we need to understand that in the context of all the words, what really speaks loudly in our day Our actions and I hear a lot of people profess to be faithful to God I'm not judging them or quarreling with their confession don't hear me saying that but I hear them say that a lot and I have started to ask myself and think for myself that what I would like to see is their conviction lived out not talked about You know, say, that's the whole idea that I mentioned a minute ago. We often excuse ourselves. I've seen so many times that Christians will do something that they shouldn't out of kindness to another person, or perceived kindness, I should say, or because they think they're expected to, when I'm convinced their best choice would be if they truly are faithful to God, if their allegiance is to Jesus, their best choice is something different. My favorite example of that is this, and it hasn't happened for a long time, probably because I've mentioned it publicly a few times. But I'm, my favorite example is the the couple that came to me many years ago and said nice things after the service. You know, we were talking. And they said, oh, by the way, we won't be here next Sunday. We have to pick up our, and they named a relative. I can't remember if it was a son or a daughter. We have to pick up our son, let's say, at the airport. And I thought, Hmm, if I remembered correctly, that son was far from God. That son was not a faithful follower of Jesus. The parents were regular at church every Sunday. And they were, by all appearances, faithful followers of Jesus. And I couldn't help thinking that I know they were going because they wanted to see their son. I get all that. They wanted to pick their son up when their son arrived. I get all of that. But I wonder what message it might have said to their son instead of them skipping church for their son, if they had said to their son, that's great. So glad you're coming. We will be there right as soon as church is over. Because as much as we love you, you know God comes first in our hearts and in our lives. And you chose this arrival time and that's fine. We have a good airport. You can be comfortable waiting there. We will be there as quickly as we can when church is over. Well, you might say, well, that's pretty rude to your son. Well, maybe it is on one level, but maybe being that straightforward would say to that young man, God does come first, and you need to take him seriously too. As long as we allow these other kinds of things to push God aside, and it could be anything. I'm just using that example because it stunned me so much. When we allow other things to push God aside, then our actions are really saying, well, when we decide we want something different, God will have to wait. And I don't know how God's going to handle that, and I don't want to be a legalist. I've been through that in my younger days, and I don't think that's helpful. But I do want us to have some conviction about things. What is your conviction that you won't compromise? That's the point of actions being more powerful than words. Do you have a conviction that you won't shop on Sunday? I've I've used this illustration for a long time. We talked about it just in a Bible study this week, and I brought it up again, and I said my sense is these days a lot of people use Sunday to catch up on all the things they didn't get done earlier in the week, and several of the people in the Bible study said, yeah, that's right. Well, the message God is sending us is that Sunday is a gift a day off it's intended for your well-being to allow you to rest and recuperate and what he is saying by making sabbath holy is that this day is sacred keep it holy he also says you're supposed to get all your stuff done in the other six days and i know we're all stressed and rushed and all that but will hear me out you're supposed to get it all done in six days And isn't God saying, if you can't get it done in those six days and keep my day sacred, aren't you trying to do some things you shouldn't be doing? And maybe that's God's, no, not maybe. I think that is God's message to us, to make the necessary choices, to say no to the things we don't need to make priorities. Eliminate some of that stuff so our lives can make sense, and so that we can honor the Lord's day. I think that's an example, and yes, I think our actions speak much more. I think our nation, our world, would be vastly different if Christians lived out in what they do, their Christian faith, more than just giving lip service to it. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, now that I think about it. We talked about the Ten Commandments. I'm pretty sure I said at that point that a lot of people get really exercised about posting the Ten Commandments here, there, and everywhere. Well, I'm glad for them to be posted, too. Happy to, for them to be posted. No objection from me. But I wish the very same people who were so keen on having them posted would be just as keen on having them obeyed. And we live in a time when, when we flaunt the Ten Commandments in so many ways. The Ten Commandments say don't commit adultery, and we regularly see people cheating on their spouses, We see it in entertainment. We see it in life. You may know of someone who has been involved in that, even as I mention it. Maybe you know someone who is involved inappropriately even now. And we need to knock that stuff off. That's clearly wrong. Maybe you know someone who doesn't honor their parents. I would much rather have people honor their parents than... Get all upset and all in arms about posting the Ten Commandments on the schoolhouse wall. We need to do what they say, not just talk about them. We need to put God first. Doesn't God say in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, isn't it time we lived that out? No other gods before him? Sure it is. Well, you get the idea. And I guess I could go on and on. and I don't mean to go on and on too much. I mean to help us think this through that our actions do speak volumes to us. I know someone, and this has changed a lot in my lifetime, and I'm not going to pick on your conviction one way or another. That's how legalism creeps in. I'm going to challenge you on the principle. I know someone who, on principle, does not and refuses to go out to eat on Sunday. I know a lot of other Christians that do it all the time. Well, Whatever your conscience convicts you of, that's what you need to live into and up to. And I greatly respect this person who says no to going out to eat on Sunday. I think that's honorable and admirable. It's going against the grain. I don't think if you disagree with that conviction that you're a pagan and a heathen, I'm not suggesting that either. But I am asking you, what are your convictions as a Christian. And what do you say no to that people might say, well, that's ridiculous. That's bingo. That's the point. If someone says that's ridiculous, they can't understand why you would limit yourself out of faithfulness to Jesus, then you have hit the nail on the head, because now you have a testimony to say, well, you may not agree with this, and I know not every Christian agrees with me, but as I understand my faithfulness to Jesus, he has asked me to say no to this and you fill in the blank or he's asked me to say yes to this maybe you do something that people think is ridiculous maybe you spend extra time serving at your church and people say why do you spend so much time giving them time and you don't get paid for it that's uh, not an uncommon statement anymore well I give my time my service my labor to God because that's what I do as a faithful follower of Jesus see people need to hear that people might think it's crazy that you tithe to the church you mean you give money to the church? Money and you could have a nicer car if you didn't tithe? Well, that's a statement that says, I follow Jesus and I'm putting him first in every area of my life, including my money. See, that's called conviction. And if we're to be strong as the people of God, we have to have convictions. So my question to you is, what are your convictions? Because actions do speak more powerfully in these days than words well we're about to take a break and i guess some of you are really glad because i got on that and you want to get off of it because maybe god is convicting you well if he is you work it out with him while we take the break and we will come back and talk some more think out loud in just a moment i'm pastor rick cofix rx nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine that completes the protocol doctors like peter mccullough recommend. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has. Creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, Get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. The Out Loud Truth was the rallying call that started it all. America Out Loud Dot News was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Well, I hope you had a moment to work out some of those convictions that we talked about with God so that you can move on from here and we'll all be the better for it. I do want to add one little thing to that because I have to be honest with you or I feel like I need to be honest with you that one of the most difficult things for pastors And I think if we're honest, all of us would say is how do we manage this idea of Sabbath or Sunday? Traditionally, pastors have had one of their busiest, most stressful days on Sunday, and I don't think that's changed. If you want to find out, then be a pastor for a Sunday morning or two or three or four or 25 in a row, and you'll find out. It's very different than just showing up to church when you're the pastor. I get that. But that doesn't mean that we as pastors can't find a way to make a day hallowed where God has the opportunity to refresh us and where we rest. And we got to figure that out better. And, And God and I are having this conversation, and I don't have real clarity on that. If I did, I would tell you. I do know he has mentioned one specific thing that I'm doing differently, and that's fine. I'm happy to do it. I'm going to sure struggle with that going forward some, because I know the way life is. Life is complicated, complicated for all of us. Don't let your convictions condemn you. Find a way to live out your convictions in a way that honors Jesus, but doesn't set you up for condemnation. You might say, how is that possible? Well, I think it is, and you'll have to figure that out. Talk to your pastor. Ask him. Ask him to think out loud about that problem for you. All right. Well, let's continue. We're here on Instant Sermon Weekend, and we've been talking about some real questions that real people post to me. And I just brought the whole list from this one time we had Instant Sermon. And I thought these were such good questions and such interesting ones that we could spend some time on it. So we have been. we still got a few more to go. So let's plunge in. So here's the next question. Should we pray to God like Jesus said, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit? Well, that's a very interesting question, and I've heard people address this different ways over time. I remember years ago when I was a kid trying to get my arms around what it means to be a Christian, and I don't think I was terribly successful, but I was sincere, and I remember people saying, well, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, almost every time that I pray, maybe every time you hear someone pray, because of that, I almost always say to end a prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Well, is that a bad habit? No. Is it something that we're conscious of what it means and how it applies? Probably not. We're simply recognizing that the Bible says that we pray in Jesus' name. Well, the Bible does say other things about how prayer works and so forth. But one of the things I guess I want to make sure we think about here is that prayer is not given to us so we can manipulate God. And sometimes when we ask questions like this, and I don't think the person who asked this question was, was going here, but, but we, need to, we need to think about this. Sometimes when we ask questions like this, we're looking for the magic formula, shall we say. If we do it just right, then God will hear us and grant our request. You know, there's no place in the Bible that I see that. I see it sometimes in some of the books that are written on prayer, and they want to say, well, you better pray like this, and if you do, you'll get what I got. See what I got? Isn't it wonderful? Well, I'm glad God blessed them, but I'm less convinced that God blessed them the way he did because of a formula that they used to pray. So I don't think we should get caught up on, on the way we pray to God or to Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Jesus addressed the Father. That's the best example that i know and we can pray to god and we can pray in the name of jesus because we come to god as his people but let's not panic worry be afraid over missing some special secret knowledge or formula that will help us get what we want from god we don't conjure god up by certain means okay god is our covenant partner and we treat him with the utmost respect and we bring our concerns to him because we know we can trust him, because we have confidence that he hears our concerns. We have confidence he cares about the people we care about, the situations we bring to him, and we confidently come before him to give thanks. I think that's a good place to start. All right, here's the next question. Some of you are going to love this question. and um, If you're like me, you're not going to love it as much, but that's okay. It doesn't matter if I love the question or not. It matters that we talk about it and we think out loud about it. So here's the question. Question writer put it this way. Will we live through the tribulation? Are we in the tribulation now? And in parenthesis they put, feels like it, wow. Well, people are always asking and have been for a long time. I remember years ago there was absolutely hyper interest in this whole idea of the end of time. Particularly related to the tribulation. Would we be raptured? Would we live through the tribulation? Nobody wanted to live through the tribulation because as it was explained, it was a terrible thing and you didn't want to be there. So I understand why people ask these kinds of questions. First of all, are we in the tribulation now? I don't know. I think that we often have a very American view on all of these end-of-time things. If you could go... To different places in the world at different times in history and live through what those people lived through you would say it's the tribulation if you remember the killing fields of southeast asia and if you were there you would think that the world was coming to an end and the tribulation was upon us if you could live through some of the tribal conflicts that were just absolutely horrendous that took place in africa some years ago where one tribe was absolutely brutal to another tribe brutalized them in unthinkable ways, then you'd say, that's the tribulation. We in America tend to judge all of that by our pretty easy lives compared to all of that. So no, I don't think we can say we are in the tribulation now. We don't have a worldwide distress that would seem to match that. The other thing is, I think we ought to ask the question, and this is where some of you are going to be a little annoyed with me. We ought to ask the question, are we thinking about the end of time correctly? There is a lot of conversation in the people that are studying Revelation saying that this whole hyper interest on trying to make Revelation predict the end of time, that it's entirely misguided. It wasn't given to us for that purpose. It was given to us to teach us how to live through the troubles that the world will face and to assure us that no matter what happens, no matter when, when, if the worst happens... God is with us, and God will take care of things. All through the Re- the Revelation, when you read it, you see over and over, God wins. And it doesn't matter the hardships or the difficulties, God always takes care of his people in the end. I think we're better served if we think about how do we live out faithfulness to Jesus now, and we trust him to handle the end of time in the way he knows best. I really think that if you trace the the history of what we call eschatology you will discover that it came to us through one person's idea one person's theory and it's not that many years old and that theory caught on in people's imagination and it was continued down through time and we still labor under that challenge I think it's time to take a fresh look at Revelation and the end of time listen to the words of Jesus and not be afraid not wonder are we in it not fear going through it but walk with confidence and faith through whatever god leads us through the psalm says yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil but that ought to be good enough for us don't you think not to be worrying about tribulation and all the other stuff even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil why for thou art with me See, God is with us, and we can be greatly encouraged by that, and we need to realize that he's got the whole world in his hands, and we don't need to worry about this whole scare tactic of tribulation, end of times. We need to take heart that God is with us, and we're going to follow him faithfully. Now, this next question, some of you are really going to laugh about this, and that's okay, but I I take all the questions that I get in... uh, In these instant sermon Sundays, and I don't mind, I mean, sometimes we need a little break from the seriousness, and there have been some pretty serious questions today, but the next question was pretty simple. I picked up the card, and I turned it over, and I looked at it, and it said, ribeye or New York strip? (laughs) And I thought, well, that's a great question. The answer for me is ribeye. I I don't know why. I guess I just like it. I think I was introduced to ribeye when I was in high school from my father, and, and I've always been a ribeye person. I've got nothing against the other. In fact, if you're serving New York Strip, I'll be over, and I'll enjoy it along with you. All right, next question. Would there be a benefit by uniting with other denominations as Christians rather than separating? That's a fair question, and it's a question that I've thought about over time. I've heard people talk about it. I haven't heard a lot of discussion about it. I haven't been in the circles where denominational mergers have been discussed I am a product of a denominational merger when I was in uh, high school the church that I uh, high school yeah I think it was high school the church that I grew up in merged with another church and now we are formed the Wesleyan Church so I, I kind of understand that a little bit I wasn't at all involved in the details I know a lot of people were really annoyed by the details because this college was closed and this one was kept open and this was that way, and this was the other way, and people didn't like the way it was all worked out. I get that. But the general question here is a little bit different than all of the details. Is would we benefit by uniting with other denominations as Christians rather than separating? Well, separation happens for a lot of reasons. I've heard people say that it often happens and groups spring up because of sincere convictions about what the Bible says. That's great. I think that's true in the Methodist movement that I'm a part of there were sincere convictions about what the Bible said. So it formed around those convictions. I've heard other people say, yeah, but sometimes these groups spring up because of of the people involved and they don't want to go the way that other person did. So they start their own group. And so we have a little bit of ego involved. Well, I don't know, maybe so. I don't doubt the people that, that explained that to me that way. I don't know the details. I've never really been interested enough to study that. But, but I will say this. I don't see in our current environment any benefit for denominations merging. We need to we need to continue on in our own world and try the best we can. Often, merging is just a bad idea. There was a merger of our particular church, the Wesleyan Church, suggested some years ago that we would merge with another denomination and and I didn't like that idea at all at the time and I said to people who who cared what I said and they didn't really care much what I said. I said that wouldn't be a merger that would be an unfriendly takeover. Well, I just thought that was kind of the the nature of that group versus our group. Nothing bad about them. They have their good points and we have our good points. I just couldn't see the benefit of that. I do think the benefit in these days is that we need to look around no matter the label and ask ourselves, are they faithful to God and the Bible? Or are they compromising with the Marxist impulse of our day, the socialist impulse of our day and allowing sin to be approved rather than corrected? And I find myself in a kind of a funny place. I've always felt like the denomination kind of helped me have a comfort level with, with people because I would know where they were coming from. I no longer feel that comfort just because of the label of the person. And in fact, some groups that I have not felt as comfortable with, and, and I'm not uncomfortable with them, don't misunderstand. Uh, I'm really making more of this by explanation than I felt it. But uh, uh, groups that I had a little bit of discomfort with, I find myself respecting more and more because while I don't agree with them on everything, they have been robust defenders of the faith, and that's what we need. And so even though they and I will never get along 100% on things, uh, they think I'm wrong, and I think they're wrong. Okay, but we're not wrong on the fact that we believe that Jesus came and died and rose from the grave so that we could have forgiveness of sins and a new life. We agree on that, and so we agree on more than we disagree, but I don't see any benefit for mergers. Now, if there are a couple of local churches that are very similar, and they want to merge, maybe that often results in problems, too, so you need to go into those with, with great care and manage those um, challenges to the glory of God and, and avoid, and as much as possible, the ego problems that often result. All right, next question. The 12 tribes of Israel were founded by a lying father. Now, I think they're referring to Abraham, but they don't name him. By a lying father, deceiving his future son-in-law and polygamy. Well, I guess maybe it wasn't Abraham that was the lying father, but he did lie about his wife being his sister. Uh, Then he talks about a future son-in-law and polygamy, and boy, it was a mess. I don't think we even need to try to untangle all of that. Yes, there was deception. There was Polygamy, no question about it. Men had multiple wives. So the question is, was God encouraging male dominance or working with fallen, sinful man to create his chosen people? Well, obviously God recognized that the world broke when sin entered the world. That's when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And so all these things could well be understood as a result of sin. The fallen nature... And people did what they thought they should do until God's way was revealed to them. Now, I'm not excusing their behavior. I don't think God excuses their behavior. But just as you want God to work with you and your foibles, shall we say? Could we say you want God to work with you through your sin or in spite of your sin? God seemed to do the same thing. The really interesting thing is that God didn't whitewash all of that. He told us the whole story. Near as we can tell, he didn't hide these things that some of these early early people in Israel did. I mean, he didn't he didn't cover that up. He didn't cover up their their deceptions, their trickery, all that kind of stuff. So we should we should take some encouragement from that that God tells us the truth and and some solace in that he worked with them, maybe he'll work with us. Boy, I sure hope he'll work with you. Because I don't want you to excuse the things that he wants to correct. I want you to change. I want your life to change. And that's what God seems to have done over time. Has changed people and moved us in his direction. So we understand things now that those men and women may not have understood. And certainly we can live out things now that they did not live out. They are not an excuse for our behavior. That's for sure. At best, we can say they were imperfect And God was working with them to bring us to the place we are now and to point us all in the direction of Jesus coming to save his people from their sins. Well, we have one last question. I think we can cover this, but it's kind of an involved one, if I remember correctly. I haven't read it until just now, but we'll plunge in and challenge ourselves. A friend of mine, the question writer says, a friend of mine goes to a church that teaches that salvation consists of only God choosing us, and that we have no part in saying yes to accepting Jesus into our life, that if God chooses someone, they will be saved, that we don't necessarily have free will in it. Please talk about that. Boy, there's a mouthful there, isn't there? And, and the question writer is correct. There are churches, there are I'm convinced faithful followers of Jesus, I'm not going to unchristianize them just because I, as you'll see, disagree with them. But they do teach that God chooses people to be saved and people to be lost and that it's all to the glory of God. So if you are a person to be saved, you are saved to the glory of God. If you are a person to be lost and sent to hell, you are sent to hell for the glory of God. Well, I I hope I'm representing them correctly. I don't want to misrepresent them. It would be easy because I have a real hard time with that position. But as I understand it, they believe just that, that God chooses, and it's nothing on our part. Now, to be sure, I agree with them that we do not save ourselves. It is only by God's grace. God extends his grace to us and gives us the opportunity to trust him. It's a little bit like... If you were drowning and a boat came by and tossed you a lifeline and you grabbed that lifeline and they pulled you to safety, you didn't save yourself, but you did grab the lifeline. It's a little bit like God extending to us his grace and saying, will you cooperate with my grace and I will save you? That's kind of the way I think about it. So it's not that we save ourselves. Don't, Don't make that leap. But it's also not that God chooses some people to be saved and some people to be lost. That clearly doesn't reflect what I understand in the Bible. Now, people get to this position because they have a very high view of God. They believe in God's sovereignty, and they believe it diminishes God to say that anything happens that God does not cause. They believe because God is sovereign that he causes everything that happens and he keeps the things that don't happen from happening. So everything that goes on is by God's design and purpose. I disagree with that because if you say that, then you have to say that when a child is badly treated or murdered, then you would have to say God was behind that. And I don't believe that he is because that's sinful, awful behavior. And I don't understand that God supports that or causes that now i I agree not everybody that takes some of this position that i'm describing goes as far as i'm describing it but what i'm saying is you have to think that all the way through if you're going to kind of understand it so i don't believe god causes all the things that happen it's not god's fault when someone is sinful and does what they shouldn't that leads us to this question about free will I'm convinced that with the way the Bible describes that is, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to make good choices. Now all of us tend to want the opportunity. We want the freedom to choose. We're not necessarily as big on the responsibility side of it. We'd kind of like to be able to choose and do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it and not have to pay any consequences for it, right? Oh yeah. That's exactly how people think about it. Well, Keep in mind that when I talked about free will, I said that we have the opportunity and the responsibility to choose. And I believe that's a good description of what the Bible teaches about free will. Now, the people that believe that God causes everything that happens to happen, they also believe in free will. But they define it differently, and I have trouble, I understand their definition, but I have trouble at all embracing it. They say, Yes, people are free to choose. But they're only free to choose what God wills them to choose. Now to me that's just double speak and that results in something I just can't understand. And I want to respect them because I think many of them are sincere in their attempts to follow Jesus. I don't think they are meaning to be what it seems to me they are. I just I can't wrap my mind around that and so i don't want to i don't want to give you the idea because it i might you might be the one that disagrees with me here i don't want to give you the idea that i'm piling on to them and like i said there's a lot of people that have done a lot of good things for god who believe that there's someone who i quote with some regularity that lives in florida and i like the guy what he writes and when i hear him speak i enjoy that but he would when you get right down to it, say that, yeah, God's behind it all. God chooses. Well, I can't go there with that. I just can't. I don't believe that's the God revealed in the Bible. See, the God revealed in the Bible is the one who sent his one and only son. And I do want to encourage you to make the choice to follow Jesus. For you can live a life of love for God and for your neighbor. And that's what God wants, to give you a new and better life. That's the way you can learn the unforced rhythms of grace that Jesus talked about. And that's my prayer for you, for all of you, that you will find Jesus and his grace. I'm Pastor Rick.